The Constellation, Episode 6 Charge of the Light Brigade guys says Carl you know when this thing is all over we have to have a real party yeah says Toby as a load of Ramonas I think you should all come over to Brussels in the summer says Dave in your dreams says Mary when was the last time when we were all together it must have been Jim's wedding no says Jim Carl wasn't there I meant the other Jim says Mary there was an awkward silence. Gus is freaked out seeing everyone on his screen at once. I've not seen you in a room together for years and now here you are all on my screen. It's a bit much. You know I love you all anyway but I'm going to turn off video. Now they could just see a dark rectangle with Sug written on it. They didn't even know if he was listening. Jim, it wasn't you that cured Boris Johnson, was it? asked Dave. Nah, I would have given him a piece of my mind, says Jim. Would you have looked after him, though? asked Mary. Of course, it's my job. Doesn't matter who it is. Imagine Trump was lying there. What would you do then? Mmm, don't go there, says Jim. Luckily, that's not going to happen. You could maybe book him in for an amputation or two as well, says Toby. Or try disinfectant. We've heard that it has amazing results. Hey, says Gus. Remember, they're listening. Who are they? asks Mary. Dunno. Just them. Mary asks Carl and Dave what they're scheming about. You must be up to something. Stuck in Brussels, you're like a couple of spies. Carl is worrying about ethics, says Dave. And Dave is reading all my books, says Carl. Which books? asks Toby. I'm uh, trying to understand the art market. <laughs> Thinking of starting a gallery? No, no, I'm trying to think beyond the market. You artists. We're not artists anymore, says Toby. You artists are always going on about community and utopias and sharing and being anti-capitalist. While at the same time you're all such bloody individualists. If anything gets in the way of your autonomy, you get on your high horses. I've, well, been reading things about the commons, uh, hetosterol, Sven Lutican. The crazy thing, says Toby, is value. How do you put value 
to something ephemeral like art. No, no, says Dave, that's totally normal in finance, just like money itself. It's only worth something because we agree on it. It's more about reputation of the banks or of the galleries, the artists themselves. The clue to the market is who controls the valuation. Like Moody's, you know, the financial ratings agencies. Maybe they're the equivalent of the museums. I'm wondering if we can't come up with something else, something collectivised. And right now, with Mr. Yambon in Flanders, says Carl, we really need an alternative here. It's going to be carnage. Maybe you can ask for European subsidy, says Toby. Anyway, how are things going in Den Haag, Mary? Are we going crazy here, just avoiding killing each other? Drinking too much? We had a rule not to drink weekdays, but now our rhythm has gone to pot. Every day is weekend when it comes to wine. But they're relaxing some things now. Primary schools go back next week, and some shops are opening slowly. Did I tell you Tim was arrested? Wow. What for? Graffiti. Spraying ER symbols on a petrol station. Shell. Cool. Fuck em, says Gus. They're fucked already. Haven't you seen what's happened to the price of oil? Asks Carl. Maybe we can make the oil companies pay for art, says Dave. Come on, Dave, where have you been? Says Mary. Didn't you hear about the campaigns to get museums like the Tate or the Van Gogh Museum to distance themselves from oil money? And Carl, that reminds me. Didn't you have some run-in with an energy company? Yeah, that was a while back. Carl was invited to propose a work for the Italian NL Prize. The subject was ecology and the environment. He made a quick sketch, changing a video installation he was working on so that it fitted in with their brief. He didn't bother to Google NL. Only after he heard he was on the shortlist and they'd be showing his work did he do that. And he found that the company, who had a number of dirty coal-burning power stations, were trying to sue Greenpeace, who'd blockaded one of their plants for one million euros. He didn't really know what to do. The work was already finished and he'd signed the contract. He decided to turn up to the press conference wearing a Greenpeace t-shirt and talk about the lawsuit. And if he won, he'd donate the prize to Greenpeace, he promised himself. So, at the opening, everything went smoothly. No one complained about the t-shirt and he made his speech. Later, he saw that the TV had kept the t-shirt out of shot and they hadn't translated his words into Italian. Did you win? asked Dave. No, in fact it was even worse. Not long afterwards, this bloody Italian collector dumped some of my work at an auction. So? says Dave. So my prices fell, and my ranking did too. Ranking? asks Toby. Yeah, you know, says Carl, these things like artfacts.net, artrank, like a footsie for artists. Yuck, says Mary. What's that? It's the the. It was Gus returning with a challenge. Produce a playlist of at least ten songs referencing the corona crisis. Extra points for a song from the 80s or for something from Sheffield. Everyone knew the challenge was directed at Carl. He was the only one with a similar taste in music to Gus and with an equally exhaustive memory.
Back in the day, at art school, Gus had been studying sculpture while Carl was doing communication arts. But they met in Trevor Wishart's sound class. Trevor looked out of place in his green woolly hat, surrounded by eager fashion victims wearing tight pants and leather caps. Gus was making strange musical instruments and experimenting with field recording and electronics. two had bonded over Cabaret Voltaire, but Gus soon introduced Carl to his records of other local bands, Hula, In the Nursery, Pulp, Clock DVA, The Box. Gus had shelves full of cassettes of music from all over the world. It wasn't called world music yet. He was working his way through the local library's LP collection. Had some records from Uganda at the moment. He'd got all the way up to the letter U. They talked about their teachers. Carl told him about Fanny, the new video teacher. How she'd met him a couple of years ago already in London, and she'd persuaded him to come to Sheffield too. Gus told him about Dorian, who made huge crystal penises and was a bit of a dick himself, and Colin, who had an amazing record collection. In the spring, there was a visiting lecturer, Paul Niagu, and Gus dragged Carl along. Carl had asked a smart-ass question using Marxist jargon, and Niagu had ever so nicely wiped the floor with him. But after talking about identity and style, he'd shown some work that really caught Carl's eye. In the 70s, Niagu had created an artist's group, the Generative Art Group, and organised exhibitions and catalogues. Only, there was no group, Bellmood, Honeysuckle, La Socchi and Paidola didn't exist. Niagu made all the work himself. That's brilliant, thought Carl. Nineteen eighty four was a strange year to be in Sheffield. In March, the miners' strike began at a nearby pit, Corton Wood, which is now a shopping mall. 
A lot of students went on demonstrations and campaigns to support the strikers. Carl didn't know what to do. He felt somehow disconnected from it all. The problem was, he'd got kind of a reputation for making political art, and it seemed that his tutors and fellow students were looking to him to come up with something. Connecting art and politics was always an issue, a problem. How to make something meaningful, but there wasn't propaganda? Did anyone except other artists understand anything about Niagu's work, for example? Very early, in the morning of the 18th of June, Carl was walking through town with his huge rucksack. He was nervous. He knew that he was going to look out of place. Everyone who wasn't from around here was under suspicion these days. It was like a kind of civil war. The minibus was waiting behind the bus station. He couldn't see anyone from the art school, which made him kind of relieved. He took a seat, and then a girl behind him said, Carl? He turned around, didn't recognise her. Carol, she said, you were around our house, visiting Gus. Of course, Carol, who, with her boyfriend Toby, shared the house with Gus and a couple of others. Sorry, he said, bad memory for faces. Toby he'd met recently again outside the art school, selling copies of Socialist Worker. Carl was surprised. He associated the paper with dogmatism. But the talks they'd had in the kitchen told him that Toby was really open-minded and interested in everything to do with politics and philosophy. He saw that Carol had a Nikon around her neck and remembered that she was studying journalism. How did you know about this? she asked. Oh, just a tip-off, said Carl. I brought my video camera. Good, said Carol. She was going, she said, because she didn't trust the national press. They'd switched to backing Thatcher and the police, and it looked like a setup. The miners were holding the country to ransom, they kept telling us, but it was really Thatcher holding out to try and break the unions. She'd written some things for socialist worker, she said, and although she wasn't officially working for them, she hoped she might get something that would go in the next issue. Carl thought they were going to a pit, but it was a coking works, turning the coal into coke for British steel. When they got near, there were already loads of police all over the place. Because they had a big press sign in the minibus, they were waved over to the place where other TV and radio crews had set up. Carl put his video camera on a tripod, then decided just to carry it. It was heavy, with a separate videotape unit attached. He swore when he realised he'd forgotten the microphone. It was like a kind of gladiatorial setup, he thought. The miners against the police, with the press as audience. Sometimes miners would go up to the police line and talk to them, joking a bit. Otherwise everyone was just hanging around. But there was an air of expectancy that something was going to happen. 
The miners started to move forward up to the line of officers with long shields. They looked like something out of a medieval painting. When there was a kind of a critical mass, they started to push into the line. Later, the press reported that bricks had been thrown, but Carl hadn't seen anything in the air yet. What he did see, though, was a group of mounted police moving from the back. Suddenly, there was a shout and the line opened to let the horses through. There was a stunned hush among the press. Carl zoomed in. He was in the flow, following a horse, then a group of protesters, then baton-wielding police. There was a pause, a regrouping, a standoff, which went on forever, hours literally, of periods of hanging about, and then singing, and then pushing and shoving again, some stones being thrown, and then, in the end, the horses came back. Basically, it was a stampede. Carl pressed record again and tried to pan his camera with the horses. Miners being chased and trampled, police with batons running behind, whacking everyone in sight. It was chaos. It was like a war film, he thought. But no, it was a real war, with the real blood. It took a few minutes for the police to clear the field and chase the miners into the village. Some of the press ran to pursue the action, but Carl's camera was too heavy. God knows where Carol had got to. Carl was once scathing in an interview about Jeremy Della's reconstruction of the battle, but he hadn't actually seen the documentary then. Later, he admitted, only to himself, that he was actually jealous that he hadn't thought of it himself. It was a fucking brilliant idea. Back in the video edit suite the next day, which was just a dark, smelly room with four editing sets, Carl realised that what had felt like a feature film was about 15 seconds of usable video. Everything had happened so quickly. He'd already made a sketch for the soundtrack with Gus, programming a drum machine at a very slow tempo and then turning the speed up to max. Rhythm becomes pitch, Gus had said. It's like Stockhausen. It wasn't. But it sounded cool, thought Carl. But working with the images was difficult. They had their own rhythms, of galloping horses, of running men, of batons meeting heads, and they were really difficult to edit to the soundtrack. Carl went for a coffee break. There must be a way to connect the image and the sound that didn't involve making a cut every fraction of a second. Video editing was so laborious. He thought about Trevor's classes, about compositional strategies, and then he remembered Gus quoting Namjoon Pike. Audio goes up to 20,000 hertz. Video goes up to 60 million hertz. That's the only difference. He went to the technician's shed and asked Paul if there was a way to mix audio into the video signal itself. 
Paul rolled his eyes and gave him a lecture about how that wasn't going to work, what with frames and colour bursts and sync and electrical impedance, whatever that was. Then he gave Carl an adapter cable. Just bloody try it, he said. Carl hooked the drum machine up to the video mixer and tried to blend it with the signal from the videotape. He could see that something was happening. Lines and flashes of colour were appearing in the image. Then he realised that the drum machine was too quiet. He turned up the volume. And suddenly the image lurched, spun upwards, horses and men being thrown about in a tumble dryer to the rhythm. It was raw, and the image was almost falling to pieces, but he knew that this was it. He copied the original footage until he had three minutes worth, like a seven-inch single, he thought, and ran it through this tumble dryer onto a second video recorder. Titles and it's finished, he thought, but he couldn't think of a title. A week later was the crit, the presentation, and Carl was worried. He had no idea what people were going to think. Maybe he should have thought up some theory to go along with it. First up was Raj, with a Super 8 film of his mates dressed up as gorillas with balaclavas, driving into the countryside. Pulling something out of the car boot and running across the moors. Then they unpack it. It's a young tree, which they plant and then run off again. It was followed by lots of talk about action, performance, ecology. Then Bob, 16mm film with sync sound. A stadium with a lone runner running around the track, but only filmed from one point in telly, so that he runs past the lens only twice in the four minutes. It was an idiotic waste of film, but Carl thought it was pretty funny. The tutors talked about Michael Snow and structuralist film. The third film was from Jackie, with a time-lapse made at night from Hyde Park Flats. Lines of light curling through the darkness. Everyone loved it. It was beautiful. But why bother, thought Carl. No one mentioned the miners' strike. He was expecting all these documentaries. In the pub, no one talked about anything else. How could they not engage with something that was happening in their backyard? Now it was Carl's turn. He hadn't even put titles on it yet. He couldn't think of one. He was nervous, shaking so much that he couldn't get the umatic cassette in the machine. He pressed play. The sound was loud, much too loud. Fanny stood up and left.
When it was all over, there was just silence. And then Carl heard Fanny's voice from the back. That was really beautiful, Carl. She had a nosebleed. Everyone was impressed. No one asked difficult questions about why. They all wanted to know how he'd made it. It was off to the pub afterwards then with Dave, and later, after a pinch of whiz, onto the limit. Carl was dancing. The music, loud and metallic, like steel needles driven through his flesh. When the dance floor suddenly filled with smoke and someone turned on a strobe. Charge of the Light Brigade, thought Carl. Yeah, that's it. That's the title. Thank you.